What's up, guys? Once Couples Podcast with your hosts, Matt Sartrick and myself, Peter Fendera. It's a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot news topics, one conversation at a time. I'm here from Chicago, Matt somewhere in Venice, somewhere in California, an undisclosed location, no address. He's just somewhere, somewhere discreet. What's up, Matt? <laughs> oh, what a great way to introduce this. Thank you. Undisclosed location. I am reporting live. We are in episode 49. Guys, thank you for listening. Those that are new, welcome. Yes, one conversation at a time. We're going to beast it today with Petey. He's feeling great. His hair is on fleek if you watch on YouTube. Give him a rating there, like. But anyways, guys, thank you for rating. I'm actually noticing we actually got 30 ratings. We appreciate it. Guys, if you guys like our content, enjoy us. Drop it. It helps us get ranked. We appear in search results. We're the top five nursing podcast right now on Spotify. So it is working. So continue doing that. How are you doing today, PD? I'm doing good. I saw somebody. I was looking at our artistics on Spotify and, and Apple. And I saw somebody give us one star. Like, like well, why waste your time? If you're going to hit some buttons, hit the five stars. If you're going to give one star, don't waste your time. Just close your phone. Lock it, throw it on the toilet. You know, you're probably not a good person anyways if you're gonna give give one star. It, it's it's really crazy how people are negative and they want to kind of rain on your parade. You know, if like we're we're giving out free content, we're sharing great information with you. If you have the audacity to not appreciate free information in today's society and give us a bad rating, damn that sucks. Like back in the day, you had to go to a library to, you know, read about what we're gonna talk about today, right? Or just talking about like anything, sepsis, doing that, talking about healthcare. Like you have to read a book. We're giving you information while you can cut your grass, while you're taking the kids to school, while you're cooking. Like that's amazing. Like society has changed. Yeah, it's whatever. I mean, I'm just joking around. You're not a, you're not a bad person. You just don't like us. And I don't care. You don't like us. But guys, check us out on YouTube. Follow us on Instagram. Couple of nurses on YouTube. Couple of nurses on Instagram. Couple of nurses everywhere. Couple of nurses T-shirts. You know. <laughs> so hope you guys have a good time on this episode. So on this episode, we're gonna talk about your gut health, your gut bacteria, your gut genome, and about diet. What diet is right for you? It's looking like it's more based on your gut health and your actual genome in your gut compared to anything else. And we're also gonna talk about sepsis, sepsis protocol, and what we do for the sepsis bundle. And I know those that are nurses that are tuning in, they hear sepsis all the damn time. Or if you get your patient from the ER, hey, did you fill out the sepsis uh, you know, tracking sheet? So it's definitely a thing that's talked about in healthcare. It started, I believe, in 1981, where we finally put it into like healthcare. Hey, this is something we're checking for. And it's crazy how many patients die from sepsis every single year. Like if you work for you know the geriatric population, that's what they come in nonstop for. It could be small little pneumonia. It could be a little urinary tract infection. Boom, you get sepsis. And those that don't know what sepsis is, we're going to talk and describe what sepsis is later on. Details, the criteria, and yeah. Yeah, you're about to find out today. You know, that one-star person, if you're still still listening. But guys... <laughs> let our, it go, our, PD. Just <laughs> let it go right now. Our gut genome. So there's been so much of this health stuff going around, trying to figure out what diet is best for everybody. And it's not really, one diet does not fit everybody. There's no one diet solves all our problems. There's no one diet is the key diet. And people have been thinking it's based on genetics. Some diets are based on your blood type, but it looks like it's more due to actually what's in your gut. The bacteria and your gut genome, it looks like it plays a greater role in what you 
your body prefers to digest, where you get your nutrients from, what sensitivities are compared to like genetics or just kind of blind faith with these marketing ploys that say, hey, the carnivore diet is better than being vegan, vegan is better than the keto diet, keto is better than paleo. You know, that's, that's not necessarily the thing anymore. It's more based on individual, I guess, preference, individual preference, but also the way your gut breaks down these foods as well. Yeah. And what's also being linked to is like the emotional health. The emotional health is not only impacting diet, but it's also affecting your mood. And normally if you go to a doctor today and you tell them, Hey, I have a low mood and I have digestive issues, you're going to get two different medications or prescriptions from two different consultations. But like the mind gut connection, like it tells us otherwise, it's, it's saying that the immune system, or I'm sorry, the gut and the mind, they're talking at a hormonal level and an immunological level. That's why if you just, let's just say, and this is from like a doctor that I was listening to on a podcast, she was describing not from like infections and from the gut being bad. She was talking about it from a, like a mind perspective. If you have anxiety and depression, your gut listens to that and it feels that way and it causes inflammation. And what happens is then the the leaky gut happens where your gut kind of has more openings and that's where all these opportunistic infections could occur into your body causing like um, infection. Even like um, the Guillain-Barre, I think that's a virus that's opportunistic that happens from like a leaky gut. It's same with, same with C. diff is opportunistic as well when you get C. diff in a hospital because we're destroying your gut, giving you all these antibiotics when you develop C. diff. C. diff is a normal thing to have in your gut, but if it's overpopulated, you get well, like some sort of substantial amount of diarrhea that just keeps going and going just because you don't have that healthy flora. You just have that C. diff bacteria just kind of taking, taking over, over everything. And yeah, that's, that's very, that's very true that you're saying the Ghoulain bar virus is, is um, what'd you say it was? It was not it's predatory, opportunistic op- virus. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. If your gut isn't healthy, if the genome isn't healthy, then obviously there's gonna be some opportunistic bacteria there that are gonna overgrow. Same way, if your if your white cell white cell count is low, your WBCs are low, there's gonna be some kind of infection that's that's gonna be created because there's an opportunity for for it to grow because you're lacking some kind of immune cell. Same goes with with your gut. Your gut can get overpopulated with with bacteria that aren't supposed to be in these numbers, and it just takes over and it gives you even more stomach issues than you had before. And it's interesting because I'm doing the Viomine guys. So I send out my specimen to get tested genetically, um, the sequencing of your gut microbe. And they did a questionnaire. And it's interesting how they ask you all these questions when it comes to gut health, what you're eating, your diet, your bowel pattern, your bowel consistency, what the stool kind of like look like. They ask a lot of questions about sleep. Um, A lot of questions geared towards anxiety was interesting. But hopefully this should give you an idea. It should give you a diet um, that's more geared towards your gut microbe and what what you should be eating to not upset them. Because some people can't handle like um, very, is it acidic? Like the prune diet, like people that eat a lot of prunes, they could get gout. Maybe your gut microbe is not reacting to that properly and it's, you know, creating issues. So we'll see what it says for me. And I'm excited about that. Yeah, if you're if you're like a health freak or a nutrition kind of person that's really into their nutrition and what they put in their body, 
you can't really map this out with, with genetics. I mean, I guess you totally can because I guess your genetics do kind of, genetics are associated with what kind of bacteria you have on your probiotics that are in your gut. But you can't just eat food because you prefer, you know, everyone loves pasta, but if you're sensitive to gluten, you probably should stay away from pasta. I know it tastes good. I know you like to eat it, but you should probably stay away from it. Same with your gut. Like if you eat a lot of meat and you feel bloated, you don't feel good, that you should maybe cut down your meat. That goes even with certain vegetables. You, if you eat cauliflower and it doesn't settle right, you know you should probably avoid cauliflower, cauliflower and eat some another vegetable with the same nutrient background or nu- same amount of nutrients, same amount of vitamins, and settle for that vegetable compared to cauliflower. Don't always eat for taste and what you think you should be eating. Kind of you have to look at how you feel after you eat because we have so much sensitivities that that are there, but we're not really mentally understanding them because we just eat whatever we want to eat. We eat whatever it's on news. We eat the next trending diet. We eat paleo, we eat keto, we eat carnivore. We we eat vegan because people are telling us to eat vegan. But actually listen to your body and is your body telling you to eat it? Like, yeah, we should eat a lot of vegetables, but some vegetables might do us more harm than good if you think about it. If this vegetable is causing inflammation in your gut and you're feeling sick because of it, that's not really doing you much good. That's why there's multiple foods, multiple types of meats, multiple types of vegetables for you to get that same type of nutrition. You know, just because you need vitamin C, maybe you don't do good with oranges. Maybe you should do like a cantaloupes or you should do grapefruit or you could do like vitamin C packets if, if that works. But there's multiple ways for you to get these vitamins. So if one way doesn't work, then there's another ways to do things without you feeling this bloated or this kind of gastric issues. I think people definitely should take time to develop and listen to their body to what they like and don't like. So you're making a very good point. And I've noticed something interesting because, you know, we, we talk about diet, but also your stress level could have an impact. So we talk about the whole mind gut connection. So normally you're, you know, Peter, like, let's just say your example, you live in the same home and everything's good. You're, you're more attuned with yourself because you have less stuff, you know, moving around, moving pieces. Like I just recently, you know, um, travel nurse switched locations and I feel like my life is so out of sync because I'm adapting to a new lifestyle that I'm neglecting like my, like, let's just say body or I'm not eating as well. And I'm reacting to that. And I've noticed like, Hey, I was more bloated throughout the last couple of days. I've noticed it also in my um, heart rate variability because I have that band, my heart rate variability dropped down. So my parasympathetic or my sympathetic nervous system was activated more. So it's crazy how stress level um, affects my digestive issue where I felt more bloated in the times of stress. And it's crazy how this gut bacteria, it's, it's almost like a second brain because you know how you go on a date and you're nervous and then you have that like butterfly feeling. It's crazy how it's like a second brain that's giving you, your emotions are creating feelings in your body if you listen to it. Right, because you're triggering your, your sympathetic nervous system. You know, you get anxiety, so you, so you the motility changes in, in your gut because your body's going to digest food quicker in certain cases than others because you're going to need that glucose release because your body's in, in, in flight, fight and flight response. You know, and I know there was this, this craze where it's like you should do genetic testing because that should, that's going to point you to the, the diet that you should be eating. But online, if you look at our show notes, I found like an article that's so part of a research study as well where it takes two identical twins, these two ladies from, from England, and they're identical twins. So if you're going the genetics route, you would be saying that 
they're going to most likely need the same diet. And these are, they're both athletic individuals. One's a firefighter, one's like a gold medals rower that's, that stays fit. And one is actually 50 pounds heavier than, than the other one, but they're identical, right? Yeah. So even though they're identical, food settles differently. Like one of them eats more of a, more of a carb and, carb and fat diet. The other one eats more of like salads, more of like a low carb kind of, kind of diet. But you would think that, hey, they're identical twins. They should be on, on the same diet. But no, because each these types of foods, they settle differently in their stomach. They work with their bodies in a different way. There's also that uh, Ben Greensfield guy, right? Is that, that his name? I believe his name was Ben Greenfield. Yes. He's actually a gentleman that monitored his glucose levels for, for like a year. He wasn't diabetic. He was just was interested on when his insulin spikes. And he actually ate green beans and it caused an insulin spike in his body, which doesn't really make much sense because green beans, you don't really have any sugar in green beans. It's, it's a vegetable, so you should have an insulin spike. But he received an insulin spike from, from the green beans, with, which is pretty interesting to see because his body didn't like it. It caused an inflammatory response, spiked his insulin levels, and now he doesn't eat green beans. He used to eat them all the time. And then he learned that, hey, I get insulin spike when I eat green beans, so I should probably cut them down or cut them out of my diet. That just, that just shows how, how your body responds to this food. And not necessarily genetically based because genetically, green beans don't, shouldn't spike your glucose, right? But they do but it does for him because of his, of his gut genome. Yeah. So that's why this, that, you know, the testing is a bit good because they have enough information where they know which gut bacteria prefer specific foods that cause these um, inflammatory spikes. And another thing, the way I see it, I see it as 50% genetic and 50% epigenetic where, and you know, this is not a standard um, ratio. I'm just kind of making it up for the sake of this, but I feel like, 50% is what you're born with. You can't change anything. Like if you're balding, sometimes you can't change that shit. It's just part of your genetics. You, you're, you're not a person that grows gray hair, right? The other 50%, you could actually change and manipulate by environment. And it's an actual real phenomenon. There's a study of epigenetics and your genes turn on and off and they regulate based on environment, lifestyle, what you do. That's why why do you think exercising boosts and you live longer? Because it's turning on the proper genes that actually create the body to help you live longer. So that's the way I see it. Like, hey, you know, 50%, this, you know, you're born in a culture, let's just say you're Spanish, you tolerate spicy foods, you're good. Me, on the other hand, I was born in Poland, I eat spicy food, you're gonna start, you're gonna start seeing me sweat on my, you know, my um, my my cheeks. So that's just the way it goes. Yeah. And just depends on where it's, it's like the whole nature versus nurture kind of thing. Some of it we can control, some of it we can't, you know, you're born into this life without any kind of choice. You're given the genetics, you're, you're, you're dealt and that what you could sculpt, manipulate, you got to manipulate and sculpt to, to your favor. That goes with your diet, that goes with, with your gut health. And just like you can't pick your genes, sometimes you can't always pick what you could eat. Like I said before, some of the vegetables are going to spike, spike your glucose and I'm sorry for like Mr. Greensfield, you can't eat green beans, don't eat green beans, but I'm sure he gets nutrition from, from somewhere else. So you got to kind of mold your diet just for your, I guess, your, your gut genome for, for, I hate to keep saying that phrase over and over again, but you got to mold what you eat that adapts to your, to your gut. Yeah. And it's interesting, this, the study that we're looking at, both Julie and Diane, they're identical twins, but yet, you know, their body responds differently to insulin or to the, to the carbs that they're eating and they have different insulin spikes. And that just proves to you that even on a DNA level, these people are the same genetically, 
their body reacts to food differently. So you, you know, and that just goes for the, for the sake of marketing. Like don't, you know, yes, the keto diet works because you're not eating carbs and you're restricting it and you're losing weight, but it might not be healthy for you because you need carbs and you might have, you know, you might feel fatigued and you might, you know, get those like flu chills from, from being in the keto diet. So just really guys take it with a grain of salt and just like mold, just like Peter said, your diet to your liking and, you know, listen to your body, the way it's reacting. And some people that let's just say have like autoimmune disorders or have like upset GI uh, issues all the time, you know, that they do that reset diet where they specific foods and they introduce a new food like once a week or once every couple of days that allows you to, you know, journal how you're feeling every day. And if let's just say all of a sudden you added eggs on, boom, you have bloating and diarrhea. Hey, eggs aren't the food for you. Stay away. And then you kind of take a step back. You, you know, have this diet again, then you introduce another new food, which is a great method for those that can't completely figure it out. And their doctors have no idea about their diet or their stomach. And that method is the ideal method. That's the best thing you should do for yourself if you're trying to figure out what's actually triggering your, your gut issues. Because a lot of us, regular people that just kind of eat whatever you want to eat and then, hey, you're trying to have a New Year's resolution where you're trying to lose X, X amount of weight, X amount of fat, and you go on to what's called an elimination diet. So you go from eating anything that you want to go to a carnivore diet or you eat, go from eating whatever you want to a paleo or you go from eating whatever you want to a low-carb diet. That's an elimination diet you're going to lose weight. You're going to burn fat because guess what? You're eliminating, you're limiting some type of food group. You're limiting some type of food. That's not necessarily going to fix your GI issues or, or anything like that because you're not really sure what's causing your GI issues. You're not really sure what's actually adding the poundage to you. You're not sure what's spiking your insulin. Why? Because you're limiting so much food. You can't tell what's actually limiting it. Like, yeah, you're going to feel good when you jump from eating, let's say 200 carbs a day, to eating 25 or 50, yeah, you're going to feel good because you just, you stop eating a bunch of foods and you stop eating a bunch of carbs and yeah, you're going to lose weight because you're eliminating that calorie count. So like Matt said, if you want to really figure out what food is bothering you, what food isn't right for you, you got to do one food at a time. That's the only way you're going to learn how to, that's the only way you're going to learn what's actually beneficial for your, for your gut genome. Have you done that to yourself at all where you figured out a specific food that you don't mess with because it's bad for you? No, um, there hasn't really been a specific food that, I mean, I haven't really noticed recently of any kind of GI issues. It's more of like, I noticed that if I eat a lot of carbs, I get bloated, but I'm not sure what exactly what food causes it. But if, but my carbs usually consist of like breads, if I do have carbs or starches like, like potatoes, like pastas, things like that. So it's not necessarily the food that gives me issues because I feel like I grew up on a food source that's kind of all around the food groups. So I kind of got desensitized to all the foods. So only time I really feel kind of iffy is if I eat a lot of carbs. Maybe it could be because because of the breads or pastas, but I've been on like a, you could say low carb diet for probably the past like eight months and I haven't had any kind of really issues. Okay. So you're just, you kind of called yourself like a well-rounded individual. You could just kind of be a tank and take everything, which is cool because yeah. I, I mean, were- I, I've, I even eat raw bacon. Like raw bacon to me is good. People find that, find that's really weird. My coworkers find that that's disgusting, but like, I don't know, like I could eat raw bacon and I could <laughs> eat, I could eat, um, I forgot what's it called in English. I actually forgot what's it called in Polish eater, but it's like, it's like, it's like a beef, 
but it's almost raw. It's not really cooked. It's like mixed in with like relish and onions, and it's meant to be eaten, eaten raw. I think it's called tartar in Polish. But that okay. Is, and that's raw. Um, interesting. So you just, you buy this meat raw and you eat it? I mean, I haven't bought it in a while. My parents buy it occasionally and you just buy it in like a little container and then you eat it. But like when I make bacon with my eggs, I like put two or three pieces on a, on a pan and then I eat one raw one just because I want to eat it. So, yeah. Okay. That's, I, when my dad smokes bacon, I'll have it like that. But, you know, that's your thing. See, Peter's different. His body likes it. His gut bacteria is giving a thumbs up on raw bacon. Hey, dude. Can't complain. I like how it tastes too. So it makes it even better. So if we're talking about gut bacteria, why don't we talk about some other bacteria? Let's talk about some, some sepsis. So bacteremia. That would be bacteremia. So in sepsis. So what is sepsis? So sepsis occurs when a natural response that our body does to fight off infections actually goes system-wide and it causes system-wide inflammation. So your body fights infection on a small scale is a good thing. But once it starts going throughout your whole body and uh, it starts to work on organs, you get into multi-organ failure, it does more damage than good. It dilates and it just causes a wide stream inflammation. And that's the biggest thing where your body kind of, it's like, it's like, it's fighting a war and unfortunately caused so much damage that it's like irreversible temporarily. Right. And you know, your body releases white cells, it attacks it. When it, when those, when that bacteria dies off during the infection, it creates something that our body vasodilates. And that's like the biggest thing we have with sepsis for those that are not in the hospital is blood pressure issues where they're, their blood vessels are so, I'm sorry, so they're so dilated. There's, there's a pump, which is the heart and there's not enough volume. The pipes are all dry. So the blood pressure goes down and how does the pump respond? It, it keeps working faster. That's why our heart rate goes up, right? One of the sepsis um, criteria. So we're fighting this, um, infection, what we do is we put them on life support medications called like pressors, right? And we squeeze vasoconstrict to help help those um, pipes get smaller so the pump works um, less, you know, difficult. And eventually when we can't save the patient, the sepsis is so bad, the, the pipes are so dilated, there's so much fluid we could give him and the, the pump just gives out, which is the heart, which goes into crazy rhythms. We shock them out. Sometimes the heart goes asystole where you stop breathing, stop living, and we just pump you and crack your chest till, you know, you come back Someone alive. And we, yeah, or somebody tells us to stop. And that's just, that's the crazy part of sepsis. So I just took you, you know, that's, you know, cool little anatomy field trip. If you're talking about the magic school bus, we jump into the heart, explain how that worked. And yeah, it's sad, but that's why we have the sepsis protocol, which we're going to talk about. And that's how we kind of get patients to prevent that from happening. And there's different stages of, of sepsis, but there are related to bacteria and the two most common, I guess, issues that cause severe sepsis or septic shock are pneumonia and peritonitis that develop into a wide bloodstream infection. And there are also, there's these few bacteria that are more prevalent that are related to carogenic, or not carogenic shock, sorry, but septic shock and severe sepsis. And those are MRSA, Staphylococcus aurelius, E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Enterobacter species, and P. I don't know how to even say this one, man. P. Arganosa. Arganosa. And those are, if you go to the hospital, you know, majority is our elderly population, and you have pneumonia, then you become septic, and you're infected with like MRSA, 
you have a higher chance of not coming out of the hospital alive just because it's a more serious blood infection. And it sucks because it does happen to our elderly population and affect them. What makes it even worse is they're already immunocompromised in the first place and they have a weaker immune system and they have less resilience that that's why they're the ones that, that you know, suffer the most with, with sepsis. And that's usually the number one killer of our elderly population in hospitals that, that come to, you know, the ICUs and things like that. That's why we're so uh, pumped or I guess that's why they push us so much on, you know, preventing collapses, preventing, you know, like Matt said, UTIs, preventing, you know, catheter-associated UTI, UTIs, cauties. And so we're so strong answers because we know that if somebody gets septic and they go to severe sepsis, their chance of walking out of the hospital are very slim. Not only that, but the, if the government is aware of this, the, they don't pay reimbursements to hospitals. And we we talked about this before. And that's why the government is basically saying, you know what, guys? If we put a Foley in and you guys cause an infection, that's a hospital-acquired infection. We ain't paying, let's just say, 20% reimbursement on this patient now. So now the hospital takes a hit. You don't get your, you know, you don't get your raise this year. That's why they're crazy about it. But you know what's also um, crazy, PD, is that you have a you have a patient that comes in for a simple procedure. Let's just say they get their appendix removed. They get um, a small little procedure. I'm trying to think of what kind of small procedures are like day surgery. But let's just well, say it goes. Pleurofusion. You get a you get pleurofusion. Okay. It. Yeah, perfect. Small little procedures, day in, day out, but you have to stay in the hospital one day. Sometimes it gets complicated to stay two, three days. The longer you stay, sometimes they get pneumonia, they get that. Like, bro, like sometimes people come in for something small and never make it out of the hospital. Like that's just something crazy to think about. And that could be your family member. It's it's very crazy to think about. Like you like I said, you go for a small procedure and then bang, like you're in a hospital, you get pneumonia. That's why I don't know, man. It's when you become older, it really sucks. Like it, it sucks when you get old because you're not as resilient. Your body is not a fully tuned machine like you were in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, once you start getting to past those 60s, 70s, 80s, you're getting up there, and it's a lot harder for us to treat these things because these issues, when they evolve, they get worse fast and they get worse quick because there's no resilience. Like your body is already, you know, weak as it is, and it does suck. And then there's actually three stages of sepsis. There's surge with a present infection, then there's severe sepsis, and then there's septic shock. Septic shock, man, if you go to septic shock, I, that it's a really high mortality rate. I think that that's the number one killer of hospitals is sepsis, and, and especially septic shock. Like Once you have sepsis, we do everything in our power to prevent you going from severe sepsis and septic shock. That's why there's so much protocols in place to catch it, and so much protocols in place when you do develop sepsis. And one crazy thing about sepsis and why it's such a high mortality rate is there's something called organ dysfunction begins. So every single organ, you know, the body is so fine-tuned has multiple organs and every single one regulates a specific thing. You have the kidneys and if those go bad, because that's one thing, you have lack of blood flow, the kidneys shut down. What happens when the kidneys shut down? You have a backup of fluid. You're not extracting uric acid, different things, different pH imbalances that the kidneys are in charge of. So now we have to give you medications to wreck the pH. And now we have to do dialysis because your kidneys are given out. You have fluid overload. Your lungs can't work properly on the ventilator because you're fluid overloaded. Lasix, there's no need to give them because your kidneys aren't working. And those are the complications that we deal with sepsis sometimes. It just creates a cascade of different things. And then organ dysfunction just complicates everything else on top of fighting the 
actual infection. And a lot of families don't understand this. And they're like, well, he was just fine three days ago. He just went to go get breakfast with Sally. Well, yeah, it's crazy. Three days ago, he has walkie talkie with a cane and like shit hits the fan so damn quick that, yeah, right now he's on life support and he needs dialysis because organ dysfunction. But yeah, we could talk about, (laughs) I feel like just thinking about this, like blows my mind how like a quick shit take, you know, how it takes over so quick and like, yeah, man, people die and we have it, we see it normally more and we're more like not affected. We're less affected by it, to be honest, because we see it so much. But yeah, this happens on a daily basis. It's crazy to think about how on a small scale, it's good because you're fighting off infection. But once it becomes, once it affects the whole system, it's a, it's a horrible event, event to be in. So like Matt said, let's touch upon these, these uh, stages of, of sepsis. The first one is going to be SIRS, which is your systematic inflammatory response with a present infection. So for you to be considered sepsis, you got to have two SIRS criteria and some kind of infection. So a blood call just come back positive. You have a wound that's positive for some kind of a growth. And then SIRS could be any one of these things. So it could be an elevated blood, um, sorry, elevated body temperature, less than 36 or higher than 38. So it could be the hypothermic or hyperthermic. You have a heart rate above 90 beats per minute. And that happens because your, your body needs more cardiac output. So one way to increase the blood flow to your organs is to increase the heart rate, which is naturally going to you're going to pump faster, so obviously going to get out more blood. Another one is tachypnea. So that's a high respiratory rate. Anything above 20 uh, is going to be considered a high respiratory rate. And you actually, since you're breathing so much, you're actually breathing out a lot of CO2. So a lot of times it's either going to be a high respiratory rate or your ABG, your CO2 on your ABG is going to be less than 32. So your alkalotic, respiratory alkalosis. Why? Because you need more oxygen in your blood. So you're so your natural response is to breathe quicker. You blow out the CO2 and you breathe in more O2. Another criteria is an increase in WBCs or low WBCs. So anywhere between 4 and 12 is normal. If you go below 4, that's at SIRS. Or if you go above 12, that's also SIRS. And just remember, you got to have two of these. So two out of, out of these four plus some kind of infection documented. So is it a wound? Is it a surgical site? Is it your cultures came back positive? And it's a scary thing. So that's why there's... I'm not sure how they do it in your hospital, but in ours, if someone's is in SIRS, we get notification. So if someone has to get your elevated heart rate, WBCs are, are dysfunctional, their CO2 is low, there's a little window that pops up for us and shows, hey, you have SIRS going on. Is there also an infection? Are they in sepsis? So it kind of notifies you to kind of take, take a look at the whole picture if there's something else going on. But it pops up for us a lot, even though they don't have an infection, is because most people that I work with are in heart failure or a cardiogenic shock. Because cardiogenic shock produces this similar responses, but without the positive bloodstream infection or without a positive um, culture sites. Yeah, so you have positive um, lactic acids. So taking a step back really quick for those that are non-healthcare, because some people are just tuning in and listening to us. What PD went over is basically the SIRS criteria. It's it's us kind of grading you to see whether you're at risk for sepsis. And what happens is if you potentially are, we're going to draw some urine on you. We're going to check your blood to make sure you don't have any infections. And we'll normally give you an antibiotic right away just because broad structure, broad spectrum, because we're trying to prevent what we kind of just stated at the beginning, you know, systemic organ failure. And 
what usually happens is we draw a lactic acid. If it's above, if it's greater than 2.0, normal hospitals, we should give you fluids. And there's a sepsis fluid bundle. We usually give 30 mLs per kg, right? Yes. Okay. And and that's a plus and a minus because those that are healthcare, you, you know those patients, you have a 95-year-old grandma with a bad heart and you want to dump her with a freaking you know, 2,000 mLs of fluids. She's going to, in two days, go into fluid overload. We have to treat her at Lasix. So the fluid bundle... What was yeah, that? Dude? So I'm shooting at you. Yeah, I feel like the gate, man. My Amazon package came in. So anyways, the, what happens is we give you the fluids and we're trying to prevent this organ dysfunction. Like I talked about not enough volume in the pipes to help the pump. So it's, it's preventative. So yes, sepsis, we're trying to prevent sepsis, but we also could complicate, complicate the patients on different things, especially those with um, heart issues that can't handle all that extra volume. Kind of said it better myself, Matthew. I, I love this episode, man. We're, we're just going into like deep, like nursing, anatomy, physiology. I, I kind of fuck with this. Yeah. If you guys like more of this, how we kind of talk about the human body, let us know and on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever. We'll give you guys more of like the nitty gritty science. That's correct. All right, guys. So the stage two of sepsis, if you get out of stage one and we didn't treat you enough, you're now in stage two. So stage two is severe sepsis. This is the serious criteria plus some kind of bloodstream infection or a wound infection or some kind of infection in your body plus some type of organ dysfunction. That could be a drop in your output. That could be altered mental status, decrease in plague count, difficulty breathing. Now you're short of breath. Now we got to intubate you. Abdominal pain. Maybe your cardiac numbers aren't looking good. Maybe your troponins are up. Maybe your D-dimer is up. Maybe your cardiac indexes, cardiac outputs are, are way below your normal threshold. Maybe you're hypertensive. Maybe you're hyper or hypoperfusing. Now you're in se- severe sepsis. And this is when stuff turns to, you know, starts to go real bad. And then what comes next is stage three, which is septic shock. Hold on, CD. Yes. So before you get into stage three, I kind of want to talk about one thing, which is sudden changes in the mental state. As you know, as you know, I'm not an experienced nurse, but I know some shit, let's just say. One thing for like, let's just say, we we talk about sundown and we talk about confused patients. And stage two, sometimes that 60-year-old guy is going to become confused and he's going to that's why neuroassessments is good. Always check and beginning your shift the year and they know where they are. Because if they're confused at 12 o'clock, hey, I understand maybe that 80-year-old grandma is confused. Maybe you are giving her Ativan to go to sleep or melatonin. What if she's confused because she's going into potentially organ dysfunction and um, severe sepsis? If, if, of course, there's already things to be if she's at risk for, maybe you need an ABG, maybe her CO2 is getting elevated and you just freaking snowed her with Ativan. And now we're going to delay treatment for another four hours because she's knocked out, you know? So yeah, that's, that's one thing I noticed that we, we missed in the hospital. We're like, Oh shit. Yeah. She wasn't confused. She was going into septic shock, but anyway, stage three PD, let's hit it. So stage three septic shock. And what's crazy about septic shock, what I learned is that if somebody is in septic shock or they go to septic shock from severe sepsis, their mortality rate is 30 to 50%. So you have a 50% chance of not walking out of the hospital alive once you reach septic shock. That's why it's so important for us to not have our patients go into this issue. And septic shock is defined something as hypotension despite fluid resuscitation. So we got to give you 
Sorry about that. So now we got to give you pressors. So if we gave you fluids, which should ideally increase your, your blood pressure because now you got more volume. It's not working. Something's going on. And now we need, like my set of pressures. Now maybe we need to give you Levo. Maybe you're on, you're on Levo. And you also have elevated lactic levels, which we're going to trend further on. So what's crazy. So once you become, once you go into septic shock, your chance of walking out is 50%. Your mortality goes so high up. And that's, that's crazy. That's so unfortunate. And that's just how the cascade works. And it, and it sucks, man. Like I've seen people develop it before. And it's just a, a sad thing. When, like Matt said before, somebody you know in their 50s, 40s or whatever, just had breakfast yesterday. And now he's here in the hospital in septic shock because you know he's been septic at home, but he has been refusing to go to the hospital or get checked out. And then they come when they're in severe sepsis, when things are already kind of at the... At the at the end of the line, so I'm going to share something very. It's a very personal story, and it's crazy because I, as a nurse, felt powerlessness because the truth wasn't told, and the truth that the when the truth is not told, it sucks, you know. And this is a story about a patient um, that went into septic shock, um, and he went into full blown on ARDS, which is a very light one of the complications of septic shock that you're lungs are just not working. And the family didn't understand why this happened to him at a, such an early age because he was in his 50s. And there was three sisters and very religious family. They're Muslim. There was a rabbi. You know, a lot of, you know how the Muslim culture is. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the sisters only knew that he had HIV. No one else knew that he had HIV. And the sister said, because she was a power of attorney, no one else can know. So we as nurses knew why he is not progressing, why he's not getting better, where they're inserting an A-line. Now they're taking for a procedure. Now they are um, starting dialysis. He's on CRT. He was pronated. Why is nothing working? And only one sister knew why, because he was immunocompromised because of HIV, but the other family didn't know. They're praying and it's like, we can't tell them the truth because that's just part of nursing. You have those families that are like not dysfunctional, but there's just stuff that's not told, you know? And it's, and I, and I almost wanted to, I'm, I'm explaining to a family member, you know, like why we're trying everything. And it's like, they have HIV, but I can't tell you. And it's fucked up, you know? But yeah, man, that's just one case that like reminds you of septic shock down. Like, whoa, dude, you know, I, and I had him three hundred three days in a row. And imagine what kind of mental exhaustion I felt where I'm dealing with this family every day. They're saying hi, they're smiling and they're laughing, but Hey, now he's in ARDS and yes, we're, we have to prone him and they don't understand why this is happening. But yeah. Unfortunately, that's one of the downfalls of religion. You know, as much as, as beneficial as religion is, this is kind of the things that kind of leads to sometimes because I'm sure if you tell them that he, he has HIV, they're going to they're gonna assume what? The same thing that everyone typically assumes is that they got it from unprotected sex, probably with, a, with another guy or whatever, whatever the stereotypes are are for HIV nowadays. And that's kind of how people are going to think. Even, even, even my parents would think the same thing. If I told them or, or, if, or if I died and somebody said that I have HIV, they'll probably think it's the worst thing in the world. Like, what was I, what did I do with my life? I was probably doing, doing heroin, doing all these drugs, having all this unprotected sex. And they're they're going to judge you for it. And some religions believe that if you don't do these, if you do these things, you're a sinner and there's no way for you to go to heaven. So if you kind of think about it, you can kind of understand 
why the son didn't want or the gentleman didn't want daughter, daughter, our daughter, our daughter or whoever didn't want that to be known that they have HIV or, or at that point, I'm sure it was AIDS, you know, it's understandable. And it's kind of sucks because maybe if, maybe if they knew it, it would have gave us closure, but maybe it wouldn't have, maybe it just would have, maybe, maybe the his family would have shunned him. Maybe they would have not given him a proper funeral. Maybe they would have talked talk crap about him on, on his on his deathbed. You never know. And that kind of sucks. That's how certain cultures, you know, have a visual or have an idea of of this this disease that you know you just can't disclose, unfortunately, because you get so much bias and so much hate about it. I get it. So it's almost for his own good, for even the family's consciousness that it wasn't disclosed. So yeah, I, I respect that. To a certain degree. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, I can't judge it. That's just what happened. And um, I believe that the best decisions were made in care. You know what I mean? So what happens is we have something called the sepsis bundle. And it's the last part that we're going to touch upon. And that's basically like a sepsis tracking sheet that we get. And it kind of talks about, hey, the first three hours was a criteria made. And if there's sepsis misses, you know, the hospital could get dinged for it as well. And that's a big thing. We get emails about it at work sometimes. We hear it about in meetings, sepsis, sepsis, sepsis. We get scores. We get scored on it. It's annoying. But anyways, the big thing is we have to draw a lactic. If it's greater than two, we have to draw another one within three hours um, they want blood cultures as we talked about, and it should be, you know, peripheral then 50 minutes. Another one, they usually do two sets. If you have a pick line, you might do off a pick line, depends on your hospital. Then the other one should be peripheral just to kind of double fact check. Antibiotic is given early. And of course we administer those fluids, those 30 mLs per kg. That's the first three hours of the sepsis bundle. And you then want, you want to make sure that if you are given these broad antibiotics, you got to draw the cultures first. The culture has got to be drawn before the blood, the broad spectrum antibiotic. Otherwise, it's going to throw off the, the results. It might show you a false positive or a, or a, or a false negative. And also with, with the pick lines, if they're coming in with a pick line, I mean, you probably shouldn't draw off there. You should probably use a different site just because usually, I mean, I guess you could, I guess it's going to depend on an ID. Sometimes they want to draw it off pick line because that could, that could be the source especially if they come from outside. But I know if they got that pick line placed in-house, they usually pull that pick and then they draw the, the cultures afterwards. And like I, said, like I said before, if someone's has history of heart failure or some cardiac issues, you may, might not want to give them 30 mLs per kilogram. You might not want to overload them because then that's going to throw them to, either possibly throw them to cardiogenic shock and that might just worsen the septic shock that's going to come in the future. And, and if you're a nurse listening to this, that's why you have to be a great patient advocate. Like, hey, look at the history take the initial step, not saying there's dumb nurses, but just common sense, critical think, what kind of hit, what kind of patient am I dealing with? Is this the right decision? Because a doctor writes you an order, but the, at, at the end of the day, you are the nurse, you are administering it under your license. You have the right to say, hey, I don't like the way this is going. Hey doc, listen, I know we're giving 2.5 liters, but it, maybe let's just give a liter this time and statewide because, hey, EF is 35%, she can't handle the fluids. So keep that in mind, just like PD said, and, um, antibiotics. And yeah, I know you, I mentioned PICC lines. But what about if it's a portacath? A lot of um, cancer patients come in with a portacath that we could tap into instead of, you know, to draw blood. You should do the portacath draw and then do a peripheral just to kind of fact check. Um, like, you know, if there's a blood culture in the, in the, what's it called, port, but negative in the peripheral, hey, well, maybe it's a false positive. So that's like the reason why we do two cultures. 
That's right. And um, based on a lactic, that's what's going to depend on where the patient goes into the care. You know, if the lactics are less than two after the, after the initial trending one, then the patient might go to med surge. If the lactic is like three, 2.7 trending up, or, you know, they might go to a step down unit. And if the lactic is above four, I think most hospitals require a patient of lactic greater than four to come to the ICU. I think that's our, yeah, it's definitely. If it's greater than four, you should probably for sure be going to the ICU. So that was a three-hour bundle. Now there's also a six-hour one. So at this point, you're going to redraw another lactic. You might want to throw, if the person doesn't have a central line, you might want to throw one in just in case. But you also want to be careful because if you do put a central line in, what if you cause another infection? What if that suppresses their immune system further? So there's some kind of criteria on why you want to in, insert a central line. So maybe you got to start some, some pressors, some vasopressin or some neo or, or some levo. Central line is your ideal route because those are tend to be vaso, vasotoxic, so they might damage your, your veins when you put them through a peripheral. You also want to possibly, like I said, maybe even start fluid. Maybe you want to give even more fluids. Do the fluids work? If the flu is going to work, what's your next option? Next option is the vasopressor medication, the, the, uh, the pressure, something to bring blood pressure up. And this is like, if you're a nurse, you're getting this in the ICU, you know, this is like the most busiest time with your patient. If you got a fresh patient from the ER that basically is in severe sepsis because you got him in the ICU, you, it might go north or south. It might, you know, you might give a bundle of fluids. You might give some antibiotics. The patient's stable. Maybe buy a pad for a little bit. They'll they'll send them off. If it shits a fan, become hypotensive. Um, sometimes the ER doesn't put a line in. You, you're calling your physician. Not only are you calling for consultations because the doctor ordered them, you might be putting in a central line in at this time because the patient is just going down the shitter. We're starting pressors and you, we need a central line lactics, we might be treating that. There might be other organ dysfunctions. We might be trending, hey, we have to draw a bilirubin now because we have to consult GI because this is happening or liver enzymes are elevated. So it's an interesting time as a nurse when you get a patient like this because you just have no, you don't know what to expect. And yeah. And after these bundles, only thing you can really do is just manage the patient's symptoms. You could treat their heart rate, you could treat their blood pressure. And then you kind of just, for the most part, you're treating the patient's symptoms, all these issues. And you're waiting for the cultures to come back because once they come back, then you could actually administer the proper antibiotic and hopefully you could keep them, you know, stable up until those cultures come back. So you, you can treat them before they go into severe sepsis or septic shock. So at this point, it's just treat, treating the symptoms, treating the blood pressure, treating the cardiac output, treating the oxygenization of the organs and just waiting and hopefully the disease doesn't progress quicker than you think it will. And then if you're a nurse... Good luck to you. And if you're a listener that's not a nurse, stay out of the hospital. Don't get sepsis, guys, because shit sucks. It sure does. Anything else you want to touch upon, Matthew? I think we did a great episode here, guys. So just like we said before, rank us, give us a review, follow us on social media. And if you guys find this educational, informative, and you would recommend this to somebody, please share it, guys. We grow like that. Share it. Organic reach is the best. Love you guys. See you guys next week. Peace out, guys. Reagan.